let's do it. Uh, the, one of the, some of the few things that are happening, just to kind of give an overview of, of Matthew 3, is John the Baptist shows up, first of all, so we see him. Um, and the Bible goes out of, it, out of its way to do a few things for John. Number one, introduce who he is. The second thing that the Bible aims to accomplish uh, is introduce his purpose in revealing the message of the kingdom. And so we're going to look at that. And then uh, John's role in fulfilling what Christ came to accomplish. And so John is going to do a few things, in particular baptism, that's going to help Christ fulfill all the things that he called his followers to. We'll unpack all of that together tonight. Um, and tons of good stuff that I'm just excited about. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you. We love you. We're so grateful for your word. God, as we pray every first Wednesday, I pray that your word is not something tonight that we just read. It is something that reads us. We see the way in which you're prompting us to not just read your word, but respond to it. All the ways in which your word continues to desire to change us so that we can be more like you. We can represent you uh, and we can walk that journey out. Uh, together as a body of Christ. And so we thank you for that. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we have a lot. Matthew 3, there's a lot of Matthew 3. As a matter of fact, I was pulling stuff out of it because I was like, there's no way um, we're going to be here till tomorrow. Um, and so, but let's go. Verses 1, we're going to go verses 1 through 6, and then we're going to stop. In those days, John the Baptist came, by the, for the record, I'm preaching out of the ESV on first Wednesdays, okay? So uh, someone gave us great feedback. It would be great to know what version you're reading. I'm reading out of the ESV. Um, you can read out of the ESV, the NLT, the NIV, the ABC, 123, BET, CMT. I don't care, you know, whatever, whatever suits, you know, whatever. All right, so, but that's what I'm reading out of. So if any of you are doing electronic Bibles and you want to go word for word first, we'll be in the ESV, okay? Um, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this, uh, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. All right, we're going to stop there. We're going to unpack a few things. All right, first of all, in verse 1, we see that he's in the wilderness of Judea. Now, it, that's not a huge deal. Um, it doesn't mean a lot to us, but we need context behind why that matters. So the first thing we want to understand is that Judea was a, was a Jewish area. So John is coming to speak to Jews on his first prophetic journey, confirming what God was sending him to do. So he's in Judea. He's speaking to Jews. The message, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. So he, he's going through Judea. Now, the other thing that's important to understand about Judea is Judea wasn't a city like most of the other areas were at this time. So Judea is kind of the outskirts, if you will. So, so the, the first people that he went to, John the Baptist went to, were not those that were in the heart of the city tempted by every type of sin. They were those that had removed themselves from the temptation of the city and were in the outskirts of the wilderness. Now, it's not a wilderness like we think of, right? So it's not, it's not Arizona wilderness. It's just the outskirts of the city. So for us, it would be like Molina wilderness, 
All right, so, uh, so uh, that's more of what we're talking about. Removed, but not distant, if that makes sense. All right, so, um, so they, they, they're kind of removed from the area. They've removed themselves to, in some shape or fashion, resist sin more easily, to not be associated with those that are in the city because they have problems, we don't have problems. And I think that's beautiful that John doesn't go to the middle of the city to preach the gospel first. He goes to the people that don't think they need it that bad. And he, tell, and he starts with them, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So that's what's happening. And so the other thing that I think is really important is this is also not where the person who's supposed to be the great messenger of the coming king would start his ministry. So if, if you were going to announce and you needed to create a movement with an announcement in Pensacola, you might start in traffic on David's Highway, not next to the paper mill. I'm using language the only Pensacola is understood. Everyone listening to our podcast is like, what are these people talking about right now? You would, you, what, what would you do? You would go to the heart of the city where you can get the most ears and you would make a proclamation about this information that you have. But that's not how this person that is bringing about the news of the coming king starts his ministry or starts his message. He starts with those that are removed, right? So he goes to the wilderness of Judea and he starts preaching this message of repentance. Say repentance. Matter of fact, if you have a paper Bible, I would encourage you to highlight verse two, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand because the entire backbone of what we're about to read is built off of verse 2 of Matthew chapter 3. Everything we're going to read, all of its importance, all of what John is going to be asking people to do, he's about to just start bashing heretics and throwing Pharisees. He's, he's, he's about to just like go on a tear through all of the people that think that they don't need Jesus. And all of it is built on the backbone of verse 2. Repent. Say repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So this is where he's starting at, all right? So uh, the first thing to understand is so he's talking to Jews. Now, in, in Jewish culture, repentance isn't anything new, all right? So in Gentile world, they didn't have much of a reason for this. But in Jewish culture, repentance was common, right? Because for two reasons. One, you wanted to repent to avoid consequence. Come on, anybody, anybody ever like, ah, I'm sorry, I'll never do that again, Right? So in culture, they would repent to avoid consequence, and they would repent to reveal their heart. So as for them, he's coming to them, and he's saying, you need to repent because the kingdom of heaven at hand. So, so what's different for them is all of their repentance has been to create a justification for themselves of earthly means. What I mean by that is this. Every repentance that they'd ever have to do up until this point had to do with them being in right standing with the people around them. But John is bringing a message to say your repentance today is not about having the right standing with the people around you. It's about having right standing with God in heaven. And this is new language for them. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And they've never heard the necessity to repent in the face of God. We sacrifice for that. We don't need to repent for that because we have a means of justification or being, being seen as righteous from God. We have a means that that happens over there. Repentance is what we do with our brothers. And John is coming and saying, it's not just what you do for your brothers anymore because you're about to hear about the covenant of grace, which means repentance is no longer what you do for your brothers. It's what you do before God himself. Now, to understand that, we also have to understand what repentance is. And we're going to get into that uh, a little later. Because there's, I think, many people, especially I was teaching in Pipeline uh, about a month ago. 
and we started breaking down repentance, and I was, I'll use the word shocked a little bit, because I was, I was talking about what repentance is, and to watch people go, how come no one teaches that in our churches? I'm like, I don't know what church you are a part of, but I, this, we're going to do it, all right? So we're going to take care of that tonight. We want to help you guys out, all right? But the second thing that I think is so important <clears throat> is this phrase, the second half of the phrase after the word repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, this is a huge, like, turning point in John's language, again, because this has never been heard before. In other words, the kingdom of heaven is nearly present. In other words, the kingdom of heaven is right here in front of us. The, right the kingdom of heaven, it's just, I mean, it's not even around the corner. He's knocking at the door. Like the king, the kingdom of what, what we've all been waiting for, the coming king, the coming Messiah, that he's going to rule and reign, it's at hand. So what your grandfather and your grandfather's grandfather and your grandfather's grandfather's grandfather was waiting on ever since we were removed from Egypt, all of what we've been waiting on, <clears throat> It's at hand. And so he's making this proclamation, not just repent because you need to, repent because if you don't, you're going to miss out on the grand thing that we've been waiting for for generations. So he's at the door. Christ is at, the kingdom of heaven is at the door. The coming Messiah is at the door, which I think is interesting language because in Revelation 3, it appears that what Christ does at the end in the book of Revelation and what he's doing in the beginning in the book of Matthew is the same type of language because in Revelation 3.20, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Where is he? Right here. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me, which I love that Jesus came to eat. <laughs> Biblical, y'all. <laughs> the part that I wanted you to get was the standing at the door part. Okay, so <clears throat> that Jesus is literally from, from Matthew chapter 3 really from Matthew 1, but from Matthew chapter 3 with what John is communicating until Jesus fulfills it and speaks about it in Revelation 3, which John the Revelator has the vision of. It's the same type of language. Get ready because I'm present. And that's what John is communicating. <clears throat> At the door knocking. There's a time to hear the Lord's knocking, listen to me, and in faith respond to the knocking that it would change who you are. So, what does a response to Christ's knocking look like? If Christ is at the door of our lives, what does a response to him being at the door look like? What, what is, if we want to say we want to be followers of Jesus, what does a response to that look like? It's easy, or I should say it's simple, it's two things, belief and repentance. Belief, say belief. And repentance. Say repentance. So, so our, what does it look like? What is the response to the God of glory wearing flesh and standing at the door to these people? What does it look like? Believe and repent. And can I tell you something? You cannot have one without the other. I'm going to say it again. You cannot have one without the other. So when we interact with people, I believe in God but their life does not represent a life of repentance. No, my friend, you do not. 
You believe in his existence as a fairy tale. You do not believe in the kingdom of heaven. Because if you did, the kingdom of heaven would prompt the necessity that that belief would also turn into a way that you change the way you live your life. So a life changed is the great representation of a life that believes. Right? Now, a life perfect? Of course not. Do we all mess up? Absolutely. Do we willfully walk in disobedience to God's word? Not as Christians. And so what is he saying? You believe and repent. And I think this is so interesting because when he deals with this kingdom of heaven at hand language, we see that show up in John chapter 4. If you want to turn there, you can because we're going to read verses 19 through 26. While you're turning there, I want to give you kind of the rundown, catch you up on what, what is happening in John chapter 4, 19 through 26. This is the Samaritan woman at the well, which is interesting. We just, we just used part of this in our message on Sunday. Jesus is going into a town, <clears throat> and as he's going to a town, the disciples go into the town to get food, and he stops at the well, and he sits, and a, a woman comes to the well to get water. All right, so many of us know the story. If you don't, now you're caught up. All the cool things have happened. All right, so uh, she's getting water out of the well. He's sitting there resting. He asks for water. They have this crazy conversation where he essentially tells her that, like, you got to stop marrying guys. All right, so that's the Brad Livingston version of this passage. So you've had five husbands, and the guy you're with now is not your husband. She's like, Zing. all right, so that has happened. And after she realizes that he is at minimum a prophet, at best, the Messiah that they've been waiting for, this conversation happens. And again, I'm wanting, to, I'm wanting to hone in on the idea that the kingdom of heaven is at hand here. So let's go to John 4, 19. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. So our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Now to give you context, what he means by that is salvation that is coming to all people started with the Jews because Jesus was a Jew. Simplified. Okay. Yet a time, this is where I want to pick up verse 23. Yet a time is coming and has now come. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Now, could you imagine being Jesus right now? And he just gave a whole breakdown, like, hey, this the mountain, worship, everything. You don't realize it. I'm right in front of you. I just gave you, like, your whole life story real quick. And she's like, well, all I know is there's a guy coming. He's going to do all the things you just did, and we can't wait till he gets here because he's going to explain everything. And Jesus is like, let me simplify, right? So, and what does he respond to in verse 26? Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. So Jesus makes it plain. But verse 23, I want you to see what Jesus speaks to the Samaritan woman at the well because he uses two things. He, he both confirms what John promised and confirms his presence. Go back to verse 23. Yet a time is coming. What language did John use? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, it's not here yet, but it's, it's, 
It's almost present. What does that mean? It's coming. There's a, the time is coming. It's almost present. And what does Jesus respond to by confirming John's words and saying the time is coming? And then he goes on to say, matter of fact, it's now. What you've been waiting for, what the Jewish people have been, what everyone's been waiting for that has been coming, in this moment, it's fulfilled. And she doesn't know what to do with that. In other words, Jesus does for her what he does for so many of us. That there has been a time coming in all of our lives where the truth would be revealed to our eyes that God is who he says he is. And until the truth is revealed to our eyes, we can't truly see it. That's why 2 Corinthians 4 says that our face is veiled. We can't see the truth for what it is. And then in one moment, he reveals himself to us the same way he revealed himself to her. And he says, a time is coming. And for each one of you, you've walked through a journey of your life where the time was coming. The time was coming. And does anybody agree with me that it was almost like through all of those seasons of life, it was like a groaning in your spirit. Like you were looking for something you couldn't find. Like you were searching in all the avenues that you thought would give you joy, but they failed you. And you looked for all the areas you thought would give you peace, but they only created more warfare. And you tried to invest into relationships, but those relationships hurt you. You tried to, rela- you tried to invest into your job, but your career never satisfied you. You tried to invest it into your bank account, but your bank account was never big enough. It was almost like you could put as much as you wanted to in there, but it never quite made you feel the way you wanted it to. You could invest it into children. You could invest it into careers. You could invest it into jobs and houses and money. And all of those things seem to fail because they never fit the cross-sized hole in your heart. And throughout that entire journey, something was coming. And you could sense it that something was coming, something was coming, something was coming. And all of a sudden, for you, in one moment, Jesus said, and the time is now. And it was like, it was like your eyes saw color for the first time. And what Jesus did for her from the time is coming to the time is now is what Jesus did in all of us from the time is coming to the time is now. And so what's happening for her in that moment, the kingdom of heaven was at hand and he was standing right in front of her. And that's what's so beautiful about what we're seeing happen before our eyes. And all of that is just in verse 2. Okay, so verse <laughs> verse 3 uh, Verse 3 goes on to explain John's validity because he, it says the voice of the one, or so the, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Which if you want the scripture reference for that, it's Isaiah 40 verses 3 through 4. He's literally quoting that verse, Isaiah 40, 3 through 4. And then John chapter 1 verse 23, John actually uses his own language here. And he says, John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of the one calling in the wilderness, making straight the path for the Lord. And so John confirms it, Matthew confirms it, Isaiah spoke of it. And so one of the things that the Bible is aiming to do with this portion is confirm that John is not just a guy that knew some things. He is the confirmation of the God of all creation, sending before John would get there a message that John would be coming with this message. And so he shows up. Verse 4 is not super interesting. Um, it talks about like his clothes and the food that he's wearing. And the goal in that passage is just to explain to us as readers and to others um, that he was this plain and a simple person. 
He didn't have fancy clothes. He didn't come in, um, you know, uh, in a Rolls Royce. He just came in with camel hair clothes, all right? And so nothing fancy about that. Um, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And I've never, I've, I've yet to dine on such a thing, but I don't imagine that it's delightful. All right, so that's where we pick up in verse 5. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now, so there's three things I want to hit at that come out of verse 5. I told you that, uh, Matthew 3 is very dense. So there's three things that are happening in this verse that we want to pull out. Number one is baptism. Number two is repentance. And number three is confession. We want to understand what's happening in each one of those things. Now, to help you understand... For those of you, maybe you're new to church or maybe you come from other denominations or other religions, particularly like the Catholic Church. If you're a part of the Roman Catholic Church, they, they, we all, they, there's different perspectives on what baptism is. Let me help you real quick to understand. Baptism is an outward sign and indicator of what the Holy Spirit has done on the inside in your spirit that you were once dead, you are now alive. When we get baptized, what we're doing is we are going under the water completely and coming out of the water as a representation of what's already happened inwardly, right? Baptism does not save you. Say it again. You are not more saved because you got baptized, okay? So you are, if you didn't get baptized, you're not going to hell because you didn't get baptized. That make sense? All right, let me make sure we're very clear on this. Now, here's what I'll tell you. Every Christian is required to get baptized. Let me also say, I'm going to say it again. Every Christian is required to get baptized. So, again, it's an outward side of inward faith, number one. And number two, it is a requirement for Christians. Say requirement. I want to make sure we're all on the same page here. Now, not to be saved, but to testify of your being saved. Okay? So, again, it doesn't make you saved, but because you are saved, he called you to do it. Now, people ask the question all the time, right? Does someone have to do that to be saved, right? Matter of fact, let's open this past baptism for just a second. Do you have to go to church to be saved? Like, do you have to get baptized to be saved? Do you have to? And, and like, uh, obviously, the, the answer to those questions is no and no and no. But the question I want to pose to us for just a second is, why in the world did we recently, or, or, or maybe not recently, maybe this has been going on for a long time, but how and why did we start using the smallest expectation of Christianity as the means by which we judge whether or not we should do something? Do you have to do that to be saved? Like, imagine if we took that same perspective to anything else in our life. Like, do I have to talk to my wife to be married? <laughs> no. Should I? I mean, it would go well. Right? Like, so... Do you have to go to work to say you have a job? Technically, no. You can say you have a job all you want. Do you have to show up to get paid? All right. So if we use the same logic in anything else in our life, we can quickly see how ridiculous it sounds. 
But all of a sudden, with our Christian faith, we're like, let's try to just find out the minimum requirements of this thing. What's the smallest investment I can give to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords to make sure that I get in? Matter of fact, I put it like this. We're submitted to a king, and yet we're trying to measure his mercy in pennies of permission to find out how little it will cost us. Even Siri broke that down. Did y'all hear that? That's wild. <laughs> Bro, that was, I'm sorry. I don't know. Yeah, that's right. Because you're the devil, Siri. Anyways, all right. So one thing I want to encourage all of us in our language as believers is remove the language, do I have to do blank to be saved? Because if all we're looking for is the least amount of investment for the greatest reward we could ever have in our life, for all eternity, we will sing holy, holy, holy to the king of kings. And we will worship the creator of the universe. Like the alpha and the omega. And we're trying to go like, man, if I could go to church twice a month, I think God will let me in still. Come on, man. And I don't say that to beat anybody up. I just say that to encourage you to think differently about not doing as least amount as possible. God, you get my yes automatically. Now whatever you ask, I've already answered. Because that will change how we live. So there's baptism, then there's repentance. So again, let's go back to verse 5, because I want to keep putting this together for you. And perfectly, this is all making sense. Then Jerusalem, Judea, and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. All right, so there's repentance that he's acknowledged. Repent for the kingdom of heaven at hand. So, so what is repentance? Let's break this down very quickly. What is repentance? A re- repentance is a changing of direction. Okay? Repentance You are going this way, and when you repent, now you're going this way. Let me tell you what repentance is not, an apology. Repentance is not an apology. Matter of fact, how many of you have ever had someone apologize to you but not change their behavior? How did you feel? How did you... Think about it for a second. What did that mean to you? What, what are words we would even use to describe that? Manipulation. Gaslighting. Right? And yet, when we claim repentance in our heart, yet do not change our behavior, who is it we're manipulating and gaslighting? But Christ himself. Moving on. So repentance is not just acknowledging we are doing wrong. Repentance is not just apologizing for the behaviors. Repentance is not confession even. Repentance is changing your mind. That was my life, and it is no longer how I will live. And if you don't want to repent, fine. But hear me, just like John the Baptist, just don't call yourself a Christian. Because repentance is the necessity of believers. You say, I don't like that. I don't, know what to, I don't know what to tell you. And I have had people sit in my office and go, I don't like those parts of the Bible, so I just won't read them. 
I said, fine. If you don't like those parts of the Bible, A, don't read them. B, don't think that I'm not going to read them just because you don't like them. And C, you should also avoid John 3.16 because if you don't take Romans 9, you don't get John 3.16 either. So, like, embrace it all or don't embrace any of it. Anyways, I'm off my high horse. Moving on. And then there's confession. Baptism, repentance, confession, right? So let me help you. What is confession then? If repentance is a change of direction, why is confession both important and why is John talking about it? Why are the people confessing if confession is not repentance? Well, let me help you because confession is the great testimony of repentance. So again, I just want to help you a little bit tonight. So confession, say confession is the way that we can understand someone has truly repented. So if someone is repented, they've changed direction, they can acknowledge in their heart this is where they messed up because now it's no longer who they are, it's who they were. So people that cannot confess to an accountability partner, to a brother in Christ, to somebody, people that cannot confess what has happened in their life are people that are still interested in living that part of their life. They have not repented, therefore there's no need for confession. So we confess what we've repented of because we've changed direction. That makes sense? And so that's what happens in confession. The problem is many use confession as the means to avoid repentance. I'm going to say it again. Many use confession as a means to avoid repentance. I don't need to change direction. I already confessed my sins. No, no, no. Confession is what you do as the byproduct of repentance, not to replace it. Does that make sense? I want to make sure you guys are getting what I'm throwing down, all right? So, so because of that, what we need is true repentance that leads to confession, not confession that replaces repentance. Because what God is looking for is a change in our heart, not just words we speak with our mouth. And so because of that, God is interested in how we are truly repenting because the kingdom of heaven is where? Right in front of us. And since the kingdom of heaven is right in front of us, I'm, God is saying, I'm interested to know if you love your life more than you love the kingdom that's at hand. Repent and change directions. Again, we'll get into it a little more in just a minute if we have time. So what's happening here is we go to 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 11, because this is interesting to me. And I want to highlight something for you, because I think many of us deal with how, how do I understand if someone is truly repentant? Now, first of all, you may say, that's none of your business. I would say you're wrong because we are to judge people by their fruit, not judge them by which we tell them they're going to heaven or hell. Judge them by which we help lead them to a place of repentance. If they're claiming they love Jesus, but the fruit of their life doesn't show it, then we have to lead them to a place of repentance so that their life can show that they truly love Jesus and he's the Lord of a life. Does that make sense? And so since we have to do those things, now what we have to do is come back and say, what does it look like? Well, one of the things, one of the great tragedies that happens when people repent, which they're not really repenting, they're confessing, is they didn't repent because they wanted to change. They rep- they're confessing because they got caught. Right? So because you got caught, you're confessing to what you did, but you have no intention on repenting of it and changing your life. And so how do we understand that? And what are the consequences of those things? 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 11 helps explain this a little bit. And it says this, and now I rejoice. This is Paul talking, just so you know. And now I rejoice, not because you were made sorrowful, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. So he's saying something was happening on the end. Any of y'all ever, anybody ever sinned before? And the moment it happened, you were like, you, it was like God was sitting next to you like, really, dog? He's just looking at you like, 
Like it, it felt like that. Anybody, y'all know what I'm talking about? So he, he, so he says, the sorrow, meaning that feeling, led to repentance. For you felt the sorrow that God had intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. And this is verse 10. Godly sorrow, say sorrow. Godly sorrow brings what? Repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Now, why does worldly sorrow bring death and godly sorrow bring repentance and life? Because worldly sorrow convinces the person that because they feel bad for what they did, they must be where they're supposed to be. But they don't feel bad for what they did. They feel bad that they got caught doing it. Worldly sorrow has a way of convincing us that we've got our heart right because we apologized. When the reality is we haven't got our heart right because we apologized. We apologized because we got caught. But godly sorrow, this is what happens in godly sorrow. Godly sorrow says exactly what David said. God, against you and you alone have I sinned. I may have done all these people wrong. I may have hurt that person. I may have hurt my spouse. I may have done, I may have done those things. And I've, I'm going to suffer the consequences of what happened on earth. But there's only one person I truly sinned against, and that's God in heaven. And what's happening is God is prompting inwardly that we would respond to him and say, i got to get something right in here. Matter of fact, has anybody ever been brought to a place of repentance about a thing that no one else even knew about? Anybody? Has the Holy Spirit ever been just pushing out your heart? Like, hey, you need to delete that app off your phone. Hey, you need to quit talking to that person even though you're married. Hey, you need to stop going to those websites. Hey, you need to, come on, anybody had God do that to you? Right? What's happening? Godly sorrow is rising up in our heart. And listen, embrace godly sorrow because it is the key indicator that the Holy Spirit is present in your heart. Thank God for conviction to change who you are to become like Christ because it's the key indicator he hasn't left you alone. And I can tell you the only thing worse than being buried in our sin is being left to our sin and not feeling the Holy Spirit be present with us. And so what do we need? That's what, that is what we need is godly sorrow. And essentially what he's identifying in all of this, because we see that the people are coming from Judea and Jerusalem, and they're coming to John, and many of them are being baptized in the Jordan. So he's, he's baptized many of them, but based on the language that is used, particularly in the original text, based on the language it is used, a large crowd came, but only a few of them were baptized which I think is so interesting because you can be hearers but not doers. There's a great indication that many went out but few were baptized. That's why James 1.22, but don't just listen to God's word, do what it says, right? Matthew Henry says this, there may be a multitude of forward hearers where there are but a few true believers. Curiosity and uh, sorry, curiosity of novelty and variety may bring many to attend good preaching and to be affected with it for a while, but those who yet are not subject to the power of it. In other words, 
Many people can, a lot of people will pack out churches and they will listen to preaching and they will do all of those things, but they'll never allow the truth of God's word to penetrate their hearts to the point that it brings them to change and become doers, not just hearers of the word. It happened for John and it's happening today. So we have to constantly not just be hearers, but doers. I'm going to move quickly through a couple of things. Verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers. Come on, that's my dog right there. Who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. All right, I, let's I, very quickly, I want to move through this. I could literally preach the whole night on just that 7 through 10 because John went gangster on these dudes. All right, so first of all, he calls them brood of vipers, which that's awesome. All right, so context, they're vipers as in everything that they release with their mouth is venomous, not beneficial. Now, keep in mind, these are the religious leaders of that time. And he's saying everything you're releasing from your mouth, you only understand it through the law, but Christ has come to fulfill that. Therefore, you know not the poison you speak, and then the poison you do know, you speak it anyways. Right? So the other thing that he's doing is he's saying that you're, you are from the snake. In other words, from the snake, meaning you are, they, they think they're godly, but they, John is actually pointing out that their origin started with Genesis 3, the snake in the garden. What he's calling them is the offspring of Satan. Told you, dude's just, all right. So the next thing he's identifying is that they gloried in the fact that they were the seed of Abraham, but John is showing them that they're actually, like we said, the serpent seed. Now, and then they're a vipers gang. They're, what, one of the things that he's pointing out when he says brute of vipers uh, is that you are all vipers and you are all part of a group that collectively is coming against this message, which is a true message, yet at any point in time you could turn on one another. You don't even know how to keep yourselves in line. Yet you insist on trying to keep the nation of Israel in line. One thing I think there is to note about this is a wicked generation is a generation of vipers. And I think this is an important thing that we have to get more comfortable doing is calling poisonous generations exactly what they are. Like we have to acknowledge the drastic downfall in society right now that calls good evil and evil good like we have to do that because that's the same thing John was doing so uh, to give you context he talks about Abraham's seed um, and so uh, it just uh, this is I'm having to do this very quickly so forgive me if I for some of you um, kind of blow past but uh, in Genesis the promise to Abraham uh, that I will make the nations before you, your numbers will out, you'll outnumber the stars in the sky, the generations, like all of those things. Um, he's referencing Abraham, and he's saying Abraham's seed, talking about Abraham's lineage, provides a, a generational promise to an earthly kingdom, which is ultimately what Israel has today. Okay, So I'm, I'm making you a promise, God says, and God fulfilled that promise in Abraham. But what he's also saying is Christ came not to fulfill 
the earthly promise, he came to fulfill an eternal promise to an eternal kingdom, and that belief and repentance is the pathway to this promise and covenant, okay? And then he goes on to say the axe gets laid to the root, and what he's saying there is, because again, he's referencing, I want you to see some parallels happening. He's referencing seeds and trees. Does that make sense? So Abraham was the seed from Abraham. The trees of Jewish people and Israelites came to be. So he's referencing the seed and the tree. And what he's saying is God is cutting down some of the trees. In other words, many of them will not believe in Christ and will not receive the promise, even though they came from the seed. Okay? Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, good fruit. Say good fruit. Matter of fact, if you're highlighting stuff, that's a good one to, to highlight good fruit. It's the byproduct of belief and repentance. I'm going to say it again. Good fruit is the byproduct of belief and repentance, which I think is a problem with many generations even I, I, look at, I look at the generations past, especially over like the last 60 years of church people that did not know how to bear good fruit. Like I think there are, there, our churches are filled with far more broods of vipers than they are people bearing good fruit. We have more Pharisees in our churches than we do repentant believers, particularly in America, which I think is why we've, Unintentional, we meaning the, the institution of the church have unintentionally and in some cases maybe even intentionally hurt so many people is because we were demanding that they conform to us when in reality we never conformed to Christ. So good fruit is the byproduct of not just belief, because here's the problem. I think many of them believe they just never repented. Matter of fact, what they needed to repent of was their self-righteousness, believing that they were better than the sinful people walking through the doors at any given time. How many guys know we all need Jesus? So that's the reality. So a belief demands a change in direction. Say direction. And living. Say living. So a belief in the kingdom of heaven demands, say demands, a change in direction of how you live and what you believe. It demands it. Well, I, I just, that's not what I believe. What does the Bible say? And that's the way we live. That's, the, that's our reality. That's where we go, that's what we do. This is who holds us, right? Now, one thing that's interesting, verse two says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Say at hand. I keep bringing you back to that because there's something there, one focal point, one thing to see. John is making a point to help us recognize there's one thing that everybody needs to understand. That's the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that Christ and his kingdom are here. They're present. They're on the other side of the door. They're knocking. They're tangible. It's now. John is making sure everyone understands now is the time. What we've been waiting for, now it's the time. But you're not going to get there just because you're a Jew. You're going to get there because you, you put your faith in Christ. You believed and you repented and now you're seeking him. And so here's the thing that's interesting he's saying stop living in different directions and I think that if I could create a tangible way to help you understand what's happening here is I want you to imagine there's seven people up here just standing right and we're like and, and and because of the desires of our heart all of us are going in a different direction 
right? So, so one person's looking at money over there and one person's looking at a spouse that they don't have yet over there and one person's looking at the degree that they keep chasing after over there or the fifth degree or whatever. Like, and one person's looking at like wanting to have kids and one person's looking at the, the bigger house or bigger car and one person li- just wants to live as free as possible and, and one person wants to pursue these dreams over here. And, and, and what's happening is everybody is looking in a different direction, right? And, and essentially what he's saying to all people in a united front is repent. And when he does that, what he's asking them to do is every one of you that's looking in a different direction, stop looking at that and look at this. And matter of fact, don't just look at it, pursue it. Stop going after all the things. The kingdom of heaven is right here. Now, collectively, we're going to go after the kingdom of God. So when he's talking about repent, Stop going after all the things that you keep replacing God with and go after God, is what John is saying. Now, does that mean that God won't then empower you to go to work the next day and work that job? Of course not. The Bible is the thing that says, he that does not work does not eat. Which I think we, probably, we, need, we might need to preach that one a little more for some. That's not a high horse I have time to get on today. but So... Right, so, so, what are we doing? We're, we're aligning ourselves. Listen to me. Repent. The word of God is telling all of us, myself included, repent of every single thing you've allowed to become your God. You say, how do I know if I've allowed it to become my God? Because you answer to that before you answer to God and His word. Make your whole life subject to what He says here. And I think that's why Matthew 6.33 says, but seek first what? And where is the kingdom? At hand. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And guess what? All the things you're running after, all the things that you're trying to pursue in your life, out. I'll I'll add them to your life to the degree you need them. So the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So here's a question I have for you. Is Christ and his kingdom truly worth repenting for? Now again, I want us to think about that question with a true understanding of repentance. Not feel guilty for, not parade yourself for, not beat your head against the wall, not, not any of those things. Is Christ and his kingdom worth turning your back on everything else in your life so that you can have him? And if you can't say yes to that, then you need to bring yourself to the place where you say, in his word, you say, God, I need you to be everything to me. Jesus went out of his way. He said, the love you have for me should make it look like you hate your mother and your father and your children. Now, does he really want you to hate your mother and your father and your children? No. What he's saying is your love for me should so far surpass your love for them that it looks like hatred towards them because you love me so much. The question is, is he truly worth turning away from for? Is he worth Because hear me, 
He'll never be worth living for if he's not worth dying for. Which is why the Bible says that we got to take up our cross daily. And Paul says we have to die to our flesh. So if you won't die to yourself for him, he will not let you live for him either. And I think this is where so many people are confused about their faith in Jesus. They have a belief that God exists, but not enough belief that they could actually follow him or repent, right? So Christ has to be worth leaving everything behind for. And this is the reason why. I'm going to do, give this to you very quickly. John says in verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the shaft he will burn with unquenchable fire. For the sake of time, I'm just going to explain that. So in the farming world, you would bring in the crop, and on the threshing floor, you would use a broom and a fork, and you would crush it into the ground, and as you would crush it into the ground, the wheat and all the stuff that wasn't wheat would separate. And you would go in with the broom and you would get the wheat out and then you would burn all the excess. And the wheat is the valuable, resourceful, plentiful, purposeful thing. And the shaft is just the non-valuable, non-purposeful, useless thing. And what John was giving us here is he's saying, Jesus is coming and he's going to separate the believers from the non-believers. He's going to separate the repentant from the non-repentant. So you know, I, I know you believe in God, but if you are not believing to the point of repentance, you will be like the shaft that gets burned, not the wheat that gets honored. That's what John is saying here. And then we go to verse 13 through 17. I only give this to you, golly, quickly. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And you, and do you come to me? So Jesus comes to John and says, John, you need to baptize me. And John's like, nah. <laughs> no, I'm not going to be the one in the history books. You know what I mean? Like, Jesus is like, no, 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 you have to baptize me. And so he literally, Jesus says, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And what Jesus is saying there is, I will not demand of my disciples to do something that I have not first done myself. So he came to fulfill every component that he asks of believers, even to his baptism. Then he consented. He's like, we need to fulfill all righteousness. John's like, oh, okay. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately, say immediately, he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now, uh, verse 17 actually breaks up differently in different translations. And I want to reference one of them for a second because I think it helps us understand something that I just want to give very quickly. I don't have time to break it down to you, um, but I think it is something that we can understand when it comes to fatherhood. Um, and so God speaks, the, the Father speaks to Christ the Son in this moment. So uh, understand what's happening for a second. Yes, God is speaking to God in the flesh, 
That is happening. But what's happening is God the Father is speaking to Christ the Son in the flesh in this moment. And he does three things. And if you'll, if, if you'll change the translation with me for just a second, beloved Son is represented as my Son whom I love. Does that make sense? Beloved Son whom I love. So, so what God actually said is this is my Son with whom I love and with whom I'm well pleased. That makes sense? Okay, cool. I, I want to make sure you're with me. So this is the blueprint for fatherhood for every child. If, you, if you're going to father a child, these are the three things you have to make sure are part of your life. Identification. You have to identify. You are my son. You are my daughter. Identification. Adoration whom I love. You'd be shocked how many teenagers I sat with as a youth pastor that said, they said, my dad refuses to tell me that he loves me. With whom I love, and this is the hard part that I think, I, I think in Western society, this is the hard part. And with whom I'm well pleased. This is, so, so a parenting template, and for the record, moms, you can do two of those things, but you can't do the third one. Affirmation, can only come from a father. So adoration can come from a mother and identification can come from a mother. But a young person will never truly be affirmed if a father does not do it. They can, you can speak affirming words, but there will always be something missing in their heart. And for those of you that did not have a father, you're agreeing with me right now that it didn't matter how much my mom told me they loved me, I needed to hear it from someone else, and that someone is the father, which is why father wounds are the key indicator for many of the problems we're facing in society right now. Simultaneously, it's also the way that the devil has gotten his way into the home more than anywhere else, because I think the enemy has convinced us of two things over time. One, that fathers are not necessary, and then he's convinced fathers that being lazy is being present, and so we need to work hard to change those two things. For example, at our women's collectives this past month, we had 150 women here and we had 70 men. You want to know why? Because women are hungry for community and development and men are satisfied by just asking the question, what do I got to do to get into heaven? So men, here's my challenge. Show up. Be developed. Now, some of you had stuff going on. This is not me trying to beat you up. I'm here to highlight something. This, these numbers exist in all churches where women are active at double the rate of men. And I'm asking all men of TC to do not let that be what our statistic is. Can we do that together, men? All right, seven of us said yes. The rest of y'all, <laughs> you missed the, do I got to preach this over again? Verse one, Matthew three. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I said, men, can we do this together? Yeah. Okay, let's do it together. All right. So we see the blueprint. Now, here's the reason why it matters, and we're going to close. We're not reading Matthew 4, but I want to show you why God did what he did. Are you ready? So this is my son, whom I love and whom I'm well pleased. Look at what happens in Matthew 4, verse 1. Then, which means immediately following, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. You think that moment with God the Father was important before he went into the wilderness? 
So before you send your kid into the wilderness of their school, before you send your kid into the wilderness of their relationships, before you send their, your young or your older children into the wilderness of their own marriage, into their career, into their college field, you had better have taken the time to identify, adore, and affirm. Otherwise, they may look considerably different and they may get chewed up in the wilderness. And so let me encourage you, parents, do that, please. It's worth it. Amen? All right. So the kingdom of heaven is at hand. May we believe and repent. All the ways that we're living our life, that's not pursuing after God. Let's get him in the rightful place. We're going to take two minutes. We, we try not to ever do this on first Wednesdays. We'll get, not take a moment to let the word go past our ears and into our hearts. So we're going to take two minutes to reflect. So I want to invite you just to close your eyes. And here's the question I want you to ask yourself and let the Holy Spirit speak to your heart. What are the areas of my life I need to repent? Again, not, repenting is not getting beat up on by the devil or whatever. It's just change. What are the areas of my life I need to change direction so that the kingdom of heaven that's at hand can be the most important thing? Just take a couple minutes and reflect on that.